Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. And before I jump into our amazing conversation, I just want to remind you, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please, please, please consider circling over to iTunes and leaving a review. Okay. Today, we're talking about bioidentical hormones, uh, evaluating for them, the appropriate labs. We're going to be talking about uh, protocols. We're just going to dive in deeply. I'm speaking with expert Dr. Lynn Mielke. Uh, she is an in-the-trenches clinician. She's been doing this for years. She's the founder of Optimal Health Spectrums, a large integrative clinic in Pleasanton, California. She graduated from Indiana University School of Medicine and then completed her psychiatry residency at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute, where she became board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She has received extensive training in all things anti-aging uh, through A4M, and she's also a fellow of the American Academy of Ozone Therapy. Uh, her interest and transition into integrative medicine actually started when her youngest son was diagnosed with autism, and she realized that the standard medical approach wasn't useful. Uh, and then additionally, when she experienced her own age-related hormone decline, uh, she realized her concerns weren't being uh, met either, and so she's gone headlong into integrative medicine and has been in this space for uh, years now. She lectures and trains clinicians, um, attends many conferences uh, annually. She's researching new treatments, and she is considered an expert in the field. Welcome, Dr. Mielke, to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Thank you. All right. Let's. I want to hear a little bit about your your journey into integrative medicine. I mean, you talked. You just mentioned in your bio here that your son was diagnosed with autism, and um, that prompted you to expand your options. Yeah, I actually think a lot of physicians nowadays get into integrative medicine because of a personal connection somehow. Yes. When they realize that the traditional Western medicine approach is just failing in many areas of healthcare. Right. So, in the case of autism, you know, here I was a board certified psychiatrist, and the only thing that doctors wanted to do to my three year old son at that time was put him on Risperdal. And I was like, yes. I am not putting my three-year-old on an antipsychotic drug. And I was like, there has to be something else out there, something better. And so I started attending, at that time, it was Defeat Autism Now conferences. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I remember this was like a religious conversion or something when I realized there was this entire other world out there of integrative medicine. And I had been denied that training in medical school. Right. You know, no exposure to that whatsoever. Um, it made obvious sense to me that this was the right approach for many health issues. So I started attending all these conferences and um, gradually shifted out of psychiatry and into integrative medicine. Yes, right. And then, and you know, I used to go to the DAN conferences also, and they were just mm -hmm. really, really great resources. What, yeah. I'm just curious, did you... And you just what a, just briefly, because we need to move on the topic at hand, but I'm just curious yeah. what you mm -hmm. ended up doing with your son. And, you know, you obviously found some good outcome or you wouldn't have continued on this path with such a robust commitment. 
Well, you know, we've done everything with him from chelation to special nutrient therapies, lots of gut issues, of course, mm-hmm. healing that, Yes. working on, I mean, autism is such a comprehensive multi-system health problem that I have said that anyone who understands how to treat autism understands integrative medicine, basically. Right. It's an amazing treatment, if you will, <laughs> um, how comprehensive the treatment protocols have to be when you're dealing with an autistic child, you know, autoimmune issues, brain autoimmunity. I mean, mm-hmm. so much going on. So it's, um, they're very complex patients, but very rewarding when you can help them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so then, you know, again, necessity is the mother of, of, of invention. You started to have some hormone fallouts yourself, and right. you know, and a lot <laughs> of the I parents, uh, yeah, yeah a lot of the parents of the autistic, you know, kids were like, "Can you treat us?" You know, and at that point, I was only treating autistic children, and I was like, "Well, yeah, I guess I could expand my practice into adults," and then realizing that adults need that hormone piece in addition to the regular integrative medicine, everything else that we do. Yes. So uh, attended a bunch of hormone conferences, mainly through A4M. They have a lot of good training courses on that. And uh, that's when I started doing it. And in the beginning, I, you know, I always say when I went to those initial lectures, I was hearing experts in the field saying the right way to monitor hormone therapy is through blood testing. And then the next speaker would say, no, saliva testing. And then the next speaker would say, urine testing. So Mm -hmm. I being a new practitioner at the time was like, well, which one is it, you know, because these true experts are all saying different things. So what I ended up doing in the beginning was testing several patients, all three ways. And it became very clear pretty quickly that the urine testing, the 24-hour urine, or its equivalent through the Dutch test, um, was the only method that essentially gave me the results that were correlating perfectly with the patient's symptoms. I found with saliva and blood that the result could be high or low, and that would not necessarily be you know, corresponding to what the clinical picture was the patient was showing me. And what I really like about the 24-hour urine test is that when a patient has symptoms of low estrogen, I can guarantee that test is going to show low estrogen, okay? And, you know, it just always is is this nice correlation with the clinical picture. And so you've, you've moved over to using urine exclusively. Yes. It's really a lot of patients do ask me, can you please check me in with blood? Because, you know, the advantage of that, simpler, it's one quick blood draw covered yes. by insurance often. Yes. Um, but I just find it so incredibly unhelpful that I basically don't do it. Wow. So even though it's standard of care, I mean, we still, I, I have to be honest and say we do both in my practice yeah. routinely. Um, yeah. But like yourself, I found, I found urine to be very useful. And yes, I, I agree that it does correlate. Um, all right. Well, you know, just talk to me about you're using Dutch and how you found mm-hmm. and landed on them. I mean, there's other urine options out there. Yeah. I mean, I started out with uh, multiple other 
companies. And um, one of the big advantages of the Dutch is, you know, for I, I my nickname for it is the four spot. I call it the four spot because it's like four spot urine collections. And you know, maybe five if they do the overnight urine. But anyway, it's just so much more convenient to be able to not have to carry a jug around for 24 hours. So yeah. that that's a huge advantage for a lot of people. I have found some people get confused by the instructions on this test. And um, so I actually have sort of made my own simplified instructions. And we even have a timeline printed out, like put the hormones on here, collect the urine here. And so it really helps our patients with how to do the test correctly. Oh, that's interesting. Well, listen, if you're if you're open to sharing that with my listeners, we can put it on your show notes page. That sounds like it would be really sure. handy. That would be great. Um, and then, and you're finding after you initiate treatment that using Dutch for follow up is also useful. Oh yeah, I mean that is what I use along with obviously their clinical symptoms to decide how to adjust hormone dosing. Okay. And what are you looking at specifically on the Dutch test? Oh, I'm looking at every single piece of information on there. But um, again, I do want to see a good balance between the progesterone levels and the estrogen levels. I want to see, you know, a nice balance between all of the hormones because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's that concept of the symphony. You want all the hormones at a good level. And if the progesterone's at the low end of range and the estrogens, for instance, at the high end of range, I'm going to definitely want to increase that progesterone to bring it up so that there's a good balance. You know, we always use the analogy with the patients of the gas pedal and the brake. Sort of estrogen is like your gas pedal. It's a growth signal. It makes tissues grow and divide. And so the progesterone is the brake. It is the anti-growth signal. So we need to have those things balanced. And I do see a number of patients who tell me, well, my gynecologist said I don't need progesterone because I had a hysterectomy. And I say, you still need progesterone because progesterone has all kinds of benefits for the entire body, including the brain, helps prevent breast cancer. So I say, you may not have a uterus, but you probably still have breasts. So, you know, you do need progesterone. Yes, absolutely. And you're comfortable with the fact that using urine as a specimen means you're not directly looking at progesterone, but you're looking at metabolites? Yeah, the indirect, but yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very, um, again, I find that it correlates very well. If someone is low in progesterone, they may be having symptoms of heavy bleeding or cramping or yes. insomnia or symptoms of low progesterone. So I basically find, again, that even though it isn't a direct measure, it correlates very well with the patient's clinical picture. Good, good. And what about the metabolites? I mean, you obviously must be looking at those. And, you know, what are you thinking about with regard to the 16-hydroxyestrone and the 4 and the 2-hydroxyestrone? I mean, we definitely look at that. And if the 4 or the 16 is high, I will put them on the DIM or, you know, something called Indolplex IC3. So we, I use those supplements all the time. I find most women have pretty good metabolites on their own, but there's a small percentage where, you know, you have to put them on one or two of those kind of supplements. But I have a few patients in practice where we've had to go up to like four to six of those supplements in order to shift them over into the two hydroxy metabolites. Mm-hmm. 
And okay, got it. Now, what about so so sixteen hydroxyestrone? Sometimes we think in postmenopausal women that some background of sixteen actually is beneficial because it's pretty potently yeah. estrogenic. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I feel like if you're giving estrogen and you're bringing their estradiol levels up, you know, that's what is the most important thing. Right. Right. So you want to see a clean balance of the metabolites and. Yes, probably. I want all three estrogens in good ranges. Now, um, what about the 2-methoxy and looking at methylation activity? What are you thinking that's about there? Good. Well, I always look for that. And, um, you know, I, that's one of the things I really love about the Dutch test is that it gives us that methylation marker. Mm -hmm. So I always do, as part of my initial workup, you know, the MTHFR gene, and we look at what they're what that is. And if, if we're having trouble after giving methyl B12 and methylfolate and other kinds of methylation support, if they're still not methylating, I might even do a 23andMe, get their entire methylation panel and look at the other, you know, COMT and other genes. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the test gives us this beautiful dashboard indicator yes. of methylation status. And I find that sometimes, you know, someone's methylating. And then the next time I do the test, because I do it twice a year, I um, find that, uh, oops, their methylation dropped and they go, oh, yeah, I ran out of that methylfolate and didn't refill it or something. And, you know, you can always see that. So it's very helpful. I say, if you're not methylating your hormones, and again, this has cancer protective effects, then you're not methylating your neurotransmitters. You're not methylating anything properly in your body. It's, so it's very important to understand it's not just the hormones, right. but this is a systemic methylation thing that we're looking at. Right, right. What about, so for hydroxyestrone, sometimes we see that really high and we can, you know, we can do some, use interventions for uh, slowing down production, but what about the possibility of the damaging um, damaging DNA, some of those quinone addict form potential. What are you doing interventions on that side, attempting to inhibit the formation of quinone addicts? Well, I have found that usually just giving the DIM or the Indolplex kind of thing helps Drop lower it. that as well. Yeah, it, it pretty much it pretty much takes care of both, mm -hmm. in my experience on the test. So. I did want to mention one other thing about the methylation thing, though. Yeah, I have absolutely. found that, you know, if someone is taking all their methylation support and this test still shows that they're not methylating, mm -hmm. one thing that I have really noticed is that frequently that's because they have a heavy metal problem. And, you know, I start doing like an IV chelation challenge test on them and okay. then find out that, yes, in fact, they do have metals. We chelate for a while then we go back and redo their urine test and lo and behold, all of a sudden they're methylating now. Methylation is opening up. Okay, good. Yeah. That's a nice pearl. Um, and what are you, what are you, how are you collecting your, how are you evaluating your metals out of curiosity? Well, I, I prefer to do an IV test. So I start everyone at two milligrams per kilogram of DMPS mm -hmm. and 20 milligrams per kilogram of calcium EDTA in the same IV and then we collect a six-hour urine after that. So okay. they, you know, they start with an empty bladder, get that IV, collect six hours of urine as, as they go home, 
and um, we give them careful instructions how to do that. And then um, we, you know, know what it's supposed to look like, basically, after having done like thousands of these. Mm-hmm. I always tell people, you know, everyone on earth has some metal. We're not expecting it to show up as zero. But if, you know, lead or mercury is across the page, or we see a ton of cadmium and arsenic and yes. so, so many metals. Yes. So, um, you know, we find that people often have no idea where they were exposed to these things. And then we will design a chelation protocol for them. Uh, some people want to do it orally, but I do find that oral is more likely to cause stomach upset and yeast overgrowth and, and this and that. So I tend to not use a lot of oral chelation, but uh, the IV is very well tolerated, very few side effects and um, gets really good results. It's one of the best ways to, the calcium EDTA IV is the best way to pull lead from the bone, for example. Um, Thank you for that. Now, what about, what kind of levels are you looking at? Let's say where you're treating um, kind of a perimenopausal symptomatic woman. What do you want to see after HRT? And we'll talk about your HRT protocols in just a second, but what are you looking for on the labs? Well, I'm looking for sort of mid to lower mid mm-hmm. <laughs> pre-menopausal levels. Okay. Um, and then, and what about testosterone and testosterone metabolites and, and DHEA? Yeah. What do you, what do you think? I put a lot of, I put pretty much almost every woman on testosterone and or DHEA. Um, uh, you know, again, I tell people DHEA, I like to see on this urine test levels of two to 300. Okay. You know, the, the reference range is very broad as in the urine, you know, for this, yes. for that metabolite. But um, I, I want to see a level of at least 100 to 300, you know, and women tend to, and men, but in this case, women feel better on DHEA. And if their testosterone is, is low, I also prescribe that. So you'll do both concurrently? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. And are you paying attention to the metabolites? Oh, yeah. I do find that if they have, you know, high, um, you know, the 5-alpha reductase, then mm-hmm. basically they get, um, those are the women that are more prone to get acne and hair loss problems. Okay. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so if they have a high level of that enzyme, I will put them on like a saw palmetto pro, you know, product, bring that down. And then that helps them with their acne or their hair loss issue. Now, just before we jump over into protocol, um, you, you're, I'm, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure you're obviously thinking about the whole HPAG access and your access and you're looking at cortisol and you're looking at thyroid. Um, mm-hmm. I, love the cortisol awakening response on this test. Uh, And and then in the context of an overall protocol, what what are you looking for here? Well, I mean, obviously, adrenal fatigue is a huge problem. So Mm -hmm. I definitely look at their, you know, cortisol curve. And that is one of the nice things about the four spot urines is that I used to do saliva cortisol. Mm -hmm. Um, That was that was the one hormone I tested in saliva. (laughs) Um, But now it's nice because they can get that, you know, all together if, if you need it. 
Um, so I just basically look, and if the cortisol is low and if their metabolites are off, you know, the cortisol, cortisone kind of thing, mm-hmm. I give them some adrenal herbs and that just helps balance that out and um, helps them. But if they're super flatlined, I might consider a low dose of hydrocortisone for a short time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and how are you dosing that out of curiosity? I, well, we have the five milligram tablet and I, you know, depending how low they are, I would start them with like a full tablet in the morning and like a half a tablet in the afternoon, early afternoon. That's, that dose seems to work for most people. There's a small percentage of patients that are super sensitive and, you know, we have to sometimes compound it down to one milligram, but most people tolerate a half to a full tablet you know, I find that just in the morning is the most important dose, but some people need that booster dose in the afternoon because it only lasts about four to six hours in the system is what I usually tell people. Right. Yes. And, and, um, yeah, I, I, in my experience also, it seems like an afternoon dose is, is in order for, um, a good number of our patients. Well, so you talk about compounding. One of our neat off-air conversations was that you actually are doing in-office compounding. And I know we won't walk through the whole details of how you set that up. You can maybe give me a high-level idea, but I want to talk about how you're putting together your bioidenticals, you know, how you're prescribing them, you know, the dose, the root, you know, the, the, the carrier oils, et cetera. Yeah. Um, well, I find that, like for the vast majority of women, uh, a biased 50-50, you know, 50% estradiol, 50% estriol product at, and, and we have a two milligram per gram and a four milligram per gram biased. And I also have a straight estradiol only at one milligram per gram and two milligram per gram. And as far as estrogens, I find that those four formulations cover the vast majority of my patients' needs. Um, For progesterone, I have 100 milligram per gram and 200 milligram per gram cream. And we also compound a five milligram oral capsule. That is more for men, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, we also have then a 50 milligram and 100 milligram capsule. Again, finding that for most people, those are the doses that will cover them. And um, testosterone, I have a four milligram and an eight milligram per gram. And um, DHEA, 40 milligram per gram, 100 milligram per gram. So again, I find, and I always tell my patients this, that there are three main ways that we can adjust the amount of hormone that is getting absorbed into your body. And that is, of course, what matters. It doesn't matter so much what you're putting on them. It, what matters is what gets into their bloodstream and then shows up in their urine. Right. So the three ways I always say is the concentration of the cream itself, mm-hmm. how much cream you put on, and the other big variable, and this is something that I think a lot of practitioners overlook, and that is where you rub it. So yeah. I always tell people, you know, two main surfaces on our body, skin and mucosa, Skin is dry, mucosa is wet, and I always say for women, you've got your inner labia, internal vaginal, and anal opening, and those are the big mucosal surfaces, and I find that for um, most hormones, the mucosa absorbs approximately twice as much as skin, Mm. so you can essentially get double the effect by putting the same cream on mucosa versus skin. 
And another little thing that I have found, I don't know if you've seen this in your practice, but it appears to me that progesterone in particular in the cream form does not absorb that well through skin. I have found that other hormones, essentially every other hormone absorbs pretty well through skin, but progesterone in particular, I pretty much always recommend put that on mucosa because you're going to have a lot better absorption if you put it there. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I don't know why. And I actually have, but I've just seen that over and over that, um, you know, Hmm. the other hormones are absorbing through their skin. Progesterone levels come out low on the test and we put it on mucosa and now we're fine. Wow. So that's um, a good problem. I don't know why. Yeah, I, you know, I actually, so probably similar to you, um, I was taught to rotate skin sites. That, yeah, that, we, exactly. that was the original. And then we sort of made this wholesale shift towards just inner thighs, where there'd be mm-hmm. a almost like a sustained release because it would be accumulated in that local adipose tissue. And I've right. continued to do it that way for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I do see absorption, right. but I think time to benefit is longer. And obviously I could bypass Mm -hmm. that if I started somebody on, you know, applying it, you know, vaginally to the vaginal mucosa. So that's, that's actually, yeah. If, especially if it's a woman who's a little older and has serious vaginal dryness, I always tell them immediately put that estrogen cream internal um, vaginal. And, you know, then they say, how long is it going to take? And I usually say two to four weeks for that vaginal tissue to kind of, you know, plump up. Um, but you know, they don't need, um, any other product other than that. The vaginal estrogen just takes care of it really well. Yes. Yes. Look, well now Anna Quebeca just came out with a topical DHEA. Are you using yeah. that? Yeah. I use vagin- DHEA cream all the time. Yeah. Okay. All right. And how do you, pre- how are you prescribing that? I, I use all in my office. I use color coded Topiclix because I just find that it's a very simple uh, device to use. So, you know, our estrogen products are all in a pink Topiclix. The testosterone is all in a blue Topiclix, and I put DHEA red. So, red and blue are considered more masculine colors. Those are androgens. You know, of course, the estrogen is pink, and the progesterone cream is purple. So it, the colors make sense to people. It's easy for them to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, they can tell me, well, I'm on the purple cream or whatever. And I know exactly what they're getting. Obviously, there's different you know, strengths, but I know, if, obviously, from my, my records what they're getting. But um, so it, it's a very easy way to, to dispense the cream. And again, skin, I use a lot of the upper inner thigh as well. But if they're not absorbing, we move it to mucosa. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really, that's good. I'll, I'm actually going to employ that in my practice <laughs> and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about, uh, well, specifically offline, we were discussing the whole stress phenomena on progesterone. Oh, and the other piece I wanted to ask you about progesterone is, are you ever going orally for women when you want to oh, increase... Yeah. Um, definitely CNS, some of the metabolites. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I I have a lot of my, you know, women patients taking it orally. And for one reason, it's like if they're on testo DHEA and estrogen cream already, and remember progesterone needs to be, you know, mucosal. There are some women that don't like putting cream down there. It's like, it's, it can be kind of goopy, you know? Yes. 
So, and if they are having any trouble sleeping, I frequently do just prescribe it as a capsule because it's easier to take and it does help them with sleep and it's one less cream they have to deal with, you know, so it is, um, it's a great option. Um, And they obviously, yeah, then they'll accumulate some of those really wonderful progesterone uh, metabolites like the alpha pregnandiol. Okay. What's the, what is the cream that you're using? I'm sorry? What cream? What is the base that you're putting? Oh, the base, the mm-hmm. base cream? Mm-hmm. It's just the HRT cream. There, there are, you know, I can't remember the exact name of it right now, but there are some that are good for skin and mucosa, and there are some that are mainly just for skin. You don't want anything with alcohol in it, obviously, if you're going to be potentially putting it on mucosa. So there are standard compounding base creams, Okay. I used to actually use this super organic olive oil base cream. Um, the problem is with no preservatives and all that. And the problem is that stuff would get moldy sometimes. Right. So if it sat around for very long. So um, I ended up just switching over to the standard um, compounding hormone cream. And, you know, there, there are several bi- standard formulations of base cream that can be, you know, compounded with the, these different formulas. And preg- pregnenolone, are you using that mm-hmm. with, with your patients much? Yeah, I um, do. I actually do recommend sometimes, again, pregnenolone cream for some, but I also use pregnenolone capsules, you know, 10 and 30 milligrams, and I usually do that at night. If it's someone who's got serious memory or Alzheimer's problems, I'll maybe go 10 milligrams twice a day or something like that to help with their brain function. But and yeah, we use, I use pregnenolone. And will you measure that in blood? Yes. Will you so I, I should have said, yes, there are certain hormones. Obviously, thyroid is in blood. Yes. Pregnenolone is in blood. Um, you know, I sometimes will do DHEA and Tesco, DHEAS and Tesco in men, especially with blood. Okay. And I do baseline testing. When a, base, when a patient first comes in and they're not on hormones, I will do a baseline blood test. And I find, yeah, just as a baseline, I tell people this is like a ballpark, you know, it gives me like a basic ballpark of where you are, but it doesn't tell me how your hormones are fluctuating day to day or over the course of a day. Mm So, um, I, so I, yeah, I do do some blood testing. It's just that once someone is taking hormone cream or, or progesterone capsules, I find the urine test is much better for monitoring. And I, I have found this, that I've had patients come to my practice from other doctors who are, who are prescribing them hormones. And, um, one in particular comes to mind. This woman was seeing one of these fancy doctors in LA who was like the doctor to the stars kind of thing. And she had had been taking uh, this whole hormone regimen from this doctor down in L.A. And um, she came to my office and uh, told me what she was taking. And I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked and appalled. The woman was on 30 times more estrogen than what I prescribed. Wow. It wasn't just a little bit. It was this massive amount of estrogen. And I was like... And I knew immediately, I said, how did your doctor test your hormones? And she said, blood. And I said, yeah, I, I, it's to the point where I already know if a, if a patient comes in on a high level of hormones, I, I know that it's because their doctor was blood testing them. Wow. And she obviously came to you because she felt horrible. 
Well, she moved, actually. So here's what's the amazing thing. She had moved from Southern California to Northern California. Now, she said, I feel fine. Okay. And and so I said, look, I need to do this urine test (laughs) because I understand that you may feel fine. And this is another interesting thing. I have found that there are some patients who are very sensitive to subtle changes in their hormone levels, like tiny adjustments, and they really feel it. Mm-hmm. And there are other patients that seem to be completely immune to hormone side effects. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that is why you can't a hundred percent go by symptoms. You have to have this urine test to help guide your decision making. Yes. And this woman, when she did the urine test, I said, you are going to come out high. You know, yeah. she said, my blood tests were fine. And I knew it. Her urine test was super high. So Basically, you know, I had to slowly and gradually decrease her dose. And what was interesting, she felt fine the entire time I did that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we got her down to these much lower levels and she's doing well and her tests are coming out normal through the urine and she's, everything's good. But I mean, it concerns me that there are some doctors out there that are prescribing these high levels of hormone um, because they're testing through blood. Right, right. I'm sure her metabolites must have been off the off the chart. Yeah, yeah. So, well, just thinking about that and, you know, hormone-related toxicity, what are you doing in your broader functional approach with these women what, and, and men? What, so if you've got somebody on um, bioidentical hormones, what else? And you, you actually already did talk about using DIM or I3C uh, to manage metabolites, but are, are you, are you talking? Methylation supplements, yeah. And, and methylation, yeah. Are you talking to them about other pieces of the puzzle, like, um, you know, just use it, dietary changes, other nutrient oh, status, absolutely. thinking about detox? I mean, the full. Yeah. Okay. Oh, everything. I mean, when I see a new patient, I tell them that my clinic is not just hormones. We're not just one thing. It's the whole system approach. So I do a very comprehensive initial workup, lots of blood tests, you know, looking for tons of markers. I use True Health Diagnostics Lab, and uh, they have just a huge number of health markers, and you can make custom panels. So, and it's very reasonably priced. Um, so I set up a custom panel through True Health. So I do that through blood. I do a SpectraCell micronutrient panel on every new patient. Very interesting to see what their nutritional status is. Um, I do food intolerance testing. I do, you know, stool testing if that's indicated, if they have any kind of GI symptoms. Um, you know, uh, the whole gamut. I do urine porphyrins as an interesting first morning urine screen for heavy metals. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. And um, then, of course, if that is suggestive or if they're not methylating despite methylation support, then we do that IV challenge test for the heavy metals, which is much more comprehensive and much, you know, more accurate, but but more invasive. So, and more expensive. So, that's why the porphyrin is a good screen. But then there's also um, other tests that you can look at on their blood that are markers for potential metal toxicity, like an uh, oxidative stress markers like F2 isoprostane in urine. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's elevated frequently, they have a heavy metal problem. And so, are you getting that through True Health as well? Do they offer yeah, that? Or? Yeah, okay. yeah okay. they do. And then uh, things like myeloperoxidase, that's another mm-hmm. marker. I always say if that's high, they're probably losing brain cells because of their, you know, oxidative stress. So mm-hmm. anyway, there's a lot of good markers that we look at through, through them. 
Now, uh, what about the Dutch recently added organic acids to their test? Yeah. And I, I was dialoguing um, with Mark because I did, you know, I did training at at a clinical laboratory when I was a postdoc so some years ago and yeah. we looked we measured organic acids so he and I were just dialoguing about one those and he added them a he added a whole handful of them and are you finding those useful as well yeah I mean that's good to get you additional markers for you know like their glutathione status and some right. vitamin status and um, you know in again in the autistic kids we would frequently do a full organic acid profile I mean yes. and so that's like a, a very common thing to do in autism. So having some of those markers in the adults is helpful. Um, so just talk to me a little bit about libido. Again, we were mm -hmm. chatting about this off air yeah. and that's a, it's, it can be really challenging in our perimenopausal yeah. and menopausal women. What are you, what are you thinking about, you know, looking for in labs and you know, how are you turning that around? Yeah. I ask every single patient, male or female, about libido. And it is a topic that a lot of, um, you know, men and women are reluctant to talk about. Um, and it's, I also don't just use the word libido or drive. I also say, you know, are you able to orgasm? Because pe yes. some people can have drive, but can't take that final step. So. Yes. Anyway, I actually, you know, really question about this and I tell people that having the right levels of hormones is what I say necessary but not sufficient, okay? So you have to have hormones in order to be able to have sex, sexual function, but that all by itself isn't always enough. So that you have to, but that is like this foundational step that has to be there. So the main libido hormones in women, once estrogen and progesterone levels are normalized, are DHEA and testosterone, those androgens. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, a lot of doctors are only using estrogen, progesterone in women, and of course they feel better, but um, it does not give them the drive, the libido, the sense of well-being, the, the motivation, everything that um, help that those androgens help. You know, and I always say for women you know, we don't need very much, you know, essentially one to two milligrams on in cream is all I use, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's, there's a few patients that have to go three to five milligrams, but I have like maybe a handful of those patients in my entire practice. Every other patient, female, is on one to two milligrams of transdermal or transmucosal testosterone and somewhere between 10 and 25 milligrams of DHEA again, transdermal or transmucosal. So um, there, again, a small percentage cannot tolerate very much because of acne, oily skin, or, you know, breakouts, but that's pretty rare. And again, the saw palmetto products usually help, um, again, a small percentage that just for whatever reason can't tolerate it at all. And, you know, you have to stop it in those cases. But for most patients, the vast majority, they tolerate it and they feel much better. So, so that's the baseline. And then if they're still struggling, then I, you know, you know, my psychiatric background comes in handy here. We talk about self-esteem issues, body image issues. So many women, you know, feel like they're just not pretty enough, thin enough, perfect enough, you know, mm -hmm. and so they don't like to get naked because of that. And mm -hmm. so we have to talk about that. And then the other, and then if there's any kind of conflict in their relationship, that's a biggie. 
But I find that for women, one of the biggest issues of all, even if after you've addressed all these other problems, is that, and I, I usually say to my female patients, I say, look, women are multitaskers, okay? Yeah. We are doing a thousand things in our head all day long, you know, and many women just cannot shut off that to-do list in order to, you know, get into a sexual, you know, encounter, if you will. So I counsel women, I say, look, you have to get your head in the game. Yeah. Basically, and that is actually a very important step that a lot of women don't do. They just expect themselves to be able to, you know, be running around the house, taking care of the kids in the laundry or whatever, and then boom, shift gears and they're ready, you know. And I'm like, you have to take some time, you have to be relaxed. You have to think sexual thoughts. So I actually tell women, you have to intentionally shut down that to-do list and intentionally start thinking sexual thoughts. And I will tell women, use sexual fantasy. So I say, look, men do this all the time. Men just right. naturally do it. Women have to actually be coached frequently to use sexual fantasy to get their brain engaged. And so I even recommend sometimes reading a book, My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday. Mm -hmm. It's a classic book. It was actually recommended reading in my psychiatry residency program years ago. And it's a, a psychologist who actually cataloged, she interviewed and cataloged a bunch of women's sexual fantasy. So what that does, if women read that book, first of all, it gives them permission to have sexual fantasies, and it can also give them ideas okay, yeah. of, of different kinds of sexual fantasies, and women have to be given permission, like it's okay. It's sort of like I tell them, you know, you don't have to necessarily be thinking about your partner every second, you know. If something else is what is arousing to you, do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, so it's, you know, it's very important to give women that permission and to even coach them with that. And I coach women and encourage women to masturbate. I'm, I find so many women say, oh, I just can't have sex because my partner isn't, you know, willing or available or I don't have a partner or whatever. And I say, look, you don't have to depend on a partner for orgasms and you should have orgasms. They're good for you you know, they release all kinds of positive chemicals in your life. And I say, you know, when you're young and healthy, you know, people want to have sex. They want to have orgasms. And I say, when you get older, first of all, when those hormones go away, that part of your brain just falls asleep. It goes to sleep. I said, it's not dead. It just needs to be reawakened. And hormones do that. But, you know, sometimes that's not enough. I say, you have to know how to give yourself an orgasm before you can have, expect a partner to do that for you. So it's very important to coach women on that kind of thing. And I actually say, you know, and I don't have any good science behind this, but I believe that when people stop having orgasms, that is a signal to your body that something's wrong, mm -hmm. like that you're, that you're ill, okay? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it is one of the first things that goes out the window when people get sick. Yes. So if someone has a good libido, that to me is a sign of health health and well-being. So, you know, I track that with people and encourage them and, you know, have them, you know, try to have several orgasms per week. 
Oh, good. I actually wrote a I wrote a blog about that on my website because oh. I, you know I talk to people about that. Just a really under addressed area, and I appreciate yeah. you so much bringing it um, to new frontiers. A re important important conversation. And if you send me a link to your blog, we'll put it in the show notes. I'm sure that um, folks want to hear about read it. Uh, what, so, what percentage of your practice now is doing anti-aging slash bioidentical hormone replacement? Well, I mean, I like I said, I do have a part of my practice that is still autistic kids, believe it or not. It's it's like this weird thing, you know, where we treat autistic kids and then anti-aging and wellness and hormones and this and that. Um, so it's a strange combination, if you will, but it's all integrative functional medicine, all of it. So, um, but it's, you know, a lot of people are afraid to take hormones. They've heard so many bad things or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually tell people that I consider bioidentical hormone replacement, I consider hormones like a nutrient to the cells. So I'm like, it's, it's like it's bad to be low in minerals and vitamins. It's bad to be low in hormones. So many women think that menopause just means you have hot flashes for a little while and it goes away and you're done with menopause. And I tell them, no, that's not what it means at all. It's not about hot flashes. It's about being hormone deficient for the rest of your life. That is bad. This is like, um, this is why I, it's one of the main reasons why women get Alzheimer's more than men because women lose their hormones and men don't necessarily lose their hormones. You know, some men do, but mm -hmm. not all men do. Mm -hmm. And if you read the book, The End of Alzheimer's by Bredesen, one of the big interventions to prevent Alzheimer's is to take bioidentical hormones. Right, right. What, I mean, well, what about concerns around, so the big, the big concern obviously is promoting cancer with these, right. you know, with these growth hormones. And so how do right. you assure you're, you're not? Well, uh, what I always say is that, you know, I use, I like to use a lot of analogies when I'm explaining things to patients. So I say, water is essential for your health, but too much water can kill you. Okay. So it's like estrogen. Okay. It's really important for your brain, your bones, your heart, your, you know, libido, your, your skin, you name it, pretty essentially every part of your body, right? But too much estrogen is really bad. And having that gas pedal with no brake is yes. really bad. I said, you wouldn't drive a car with a gas pedal, no brake. So I say, I will not even prescribe estrogen unless you're willing to take progesterone and monitor and make sure that those levels are adequate. So I always say, if you take the right amount of a bioidentical hormone and it's properly balanced the way nature intended, and you can cycle it, progesterone, for, for a number of women, I cycle them on and off. And for others, mm -hmm. I do it all month. But I mm -hmm. usually recommend that they do take one to three days off per month. Okay. And this sort is, of, <laughs> I mean, this is your post, in your postmenopausal women? Yes. Yeah. So younger premenopausal women, you know, I start them on progesterone again, you know, anytime between 35 and 45, they need to start taking progesterone. And then, you know, depending on, you know, how their labs come out, they also may need to add the estrogen later, you know, closer to 50 usually, but you never know, mm -hmm. depending on the patient. I have some 55 year old women who still have estrogen and are still having periods on their own, but they're getting progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, maybe, you know, de depending on what they need. And again, mm -hmm. depending on that urine test. Mm -hmm. So, 
anyway, but it's just important to get all these hormones balanced. I always say, I know that in this country, estrogen is listed as a carcinogen, and I find that just appalling. I just think, I say, do you honestly believe that millions of years of evolution, higher power, whatever you want to call it, would intentionally design a hormone for the human race that would intentionally give us cancer? Right. It makes no sense for the survival of the species whatsoever. And, you know, the reason women are cut off in, at middle age is because it's Mother Nature, again, in its wisdom, knew that women should not be having babies at 70. Okay. So that is why men get to keep their hormones and women don't. It's because we're the incubators. So anyway, it's like you just need to be able to give those hormones pr at the right dose, properly balanced. Take a break every month or so to give your, I say it's sort of like rebooting your computer. It's resensitizing your receptors. It's giving your, you know, your body a little, a few days off and then get back on. You know, people say, how long should I continue to take it? And I say, how long do you want to feel better? And so in your, so, so that's how you're dosing in your postmenopausal, and then in your premenopausal, I'm assuming you're giving them a bigger chunk off, obviously, so they can have a period. Anybody who's still menstruating. Yeah. I mean, in the premenopausal, I'm probably not giving them estrogen at all, right? So I'm right. cycling their progesterone like days 12 to 25. Okay. Um, and if they're in the younger premenopausal, I'll go with the, you know, 100 milligram per gram progesterone as they approach closer to 50, I increase it to the 200 milligram per gram. So, you know, top of click math, basically one click is a quarter of a gram. So I always tell people, take the milligrams on the label, divide by four, and that's what you're getting in one click. So it helps them know what they're actually getting. Let's, you, you've been, obviously been doing this for a while, um, and you transitioned in from psychiatry. And I have a clinical development program, so physicians are tracking what we're doing in practice, and we invite them in to observe virtually, and it's really been pretty exciting. And one of the biggest, biggest questions is, how do you make the transition? Especially um, physicians who've been practicing in uh, a supported clinic setting and, um, you know, the, the, the jump to hanging out their own shingle and just how they go about managing that is a big one. And it's daunting and it's really anxiety provoking, but you obviously did it. You did a great job. Give me some, give me some thoughts on, on, on your journey there and, and any pearls. Yeah. It's, it isn't easy. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You have to have good staff. I mean, you need people who, you know, can do your books and help manage your practice. Um, one of the big things that you have to do when you uh, switch into a private self-pay only kind of practice is you suddenly have to think about marketing. You know, right. this is something right. that, you know, traditional doctors don't really have to think about very much. No. So, kind of, you know, making sure you've got that website that covers everything you do. And then, um, you know, maybe giving talks in the community. I actually did a lot of that when I was first starting my practice. Um, and uh, so I wrote a bunch of PowerPoint presentations and went to health fairs and this and that. And then eventually, as the practice grew, now I don't really have to do that anymore, because um, it's not that I don't want to, I actually enjoy doing it. But um, it is time consuming. So, right. um, but now it's essentially, you know, people find us through the website, but a lot of it is just self-referral from other patients. You know, somebody will come in and then they'll refer their entire extended family. 
So that's how the practice is, you know, growing is by that. But for a while, you toggled between your conventional practice yeah. and building yeah. your integrative practice. Yeah, when I first you... started, yeah. I would yeah. say six months to a year. I just sort of, I actually sort of kept my old patients, and but I told them all that I'm making this transition and, um, you know, I can refer you to your, another psychiatrist or, but many of them followed me into the, yeah. into the new practice. And then I just sort of increased the one and decreased the other over time. And, uh, it just, the transition just worked. You know, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but keeping some of the old practice method while you're starting the new one, even if you just do like two days a week here, two days a week there, something like that. Um, it, it worked out. Now, you mentioned earlier that you blogged, and um, we'll mm -hmm. actually link to your website also, not just that blog. We'll mm -hmm. just link over to your website on the show notes, uh, as do I, and I have been for years. And Chris Kresser, I interviewed him last year, and he talked about building his practice around blogging. That was a communication mode for him. That has been uh, helpful for you, would you say? I mean, it's a, I, I, you know, probably not using it as a primary thing, but to me, I like to blog about a topic that I find myself having to talk to patients about over and over and over. Yes. If there's, if there's something that I want to be able to expand on and it often don't have time in the appointment to go through this long explanation, I'll frequently write a blog about that. And then I'll say, okay, read my blog on X, you know? Yes. And, and I also assign a lot of books. I really recommend that. I tell my patients, read this book, read this book, read this book. Because again, it's so um, difficult in an appointment to be able to do the level of explanation that you need to. And I've, I've even had patients who were like on the fence about bioidentical hormones, for example, and I'm explaining all the health benefits and this and that. Finally, I say, read Suzanne Summers, awesome. you know, <laughs> and I'll say ageless, you know, I'm too young for this, you know, the sexy years, those are like some of her better hormone books. And I say, she's not a blonde bimbo. She knows what she's talking about. She knows more about bioidentical hormones than most doctors, you know. <laughs> And um, I will tell the patients and I, her reading, her, you know, her writing style is very, you know, engaging and she explains it well. And it's not like I, you know, agree with 100% of what she says, but a lot. And so I tell people to read that and they come back and go, wow, yeah, I, now I get it. Yeah, good. So I just find that to be really a helpful tool is to, I have a whole bookshelf full of integrative health books and I'll point to and I say read this one and they'll take a picture of it and they'll read it and it's very it's such an important part of our job as integrative practitioners to educate our patients mm -hmm. and, and you, you know nutrition books hormone books all of that what are you are you doing the nutrition prescription with your patients or do you have support staff and if you do who's who's helping you out in this arena well, I, yeah, I actually don't, I used to have a nutritionist on staff and I just ended up sort of not being able to maintain that. But I usually just recommend people read these various books. One of my favorites is It Starts With Food um, by Hartwig. It's a really good overall nutrition book. I like um, for patients with any kind of addictive food problem. I recommend the Bright Line Eating book. Um, other for autoimmune disorders and all kinds of gut, just, I recommend the plant paradox book. I, so I have okay. a lot of I, paleo books. I recommend all those, you know, those kind of things. Um, ketogenic books, 
you know, I try to customize my own dietary, you know, depending on the patient and their health problems. And I mm -hmm. recommend a lot of intermittent fasting for people. And, you know, I, so I basically, you know, customize the nutritional recommendation, give them the resources. And, you know, that's, uh, if they need help, I can refer them to a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Got it. Most people can do it on their own if you give them the right advice. Nice. So you keep a library in-house and just pull yeah. out your books and say, get this yeah. one, read this one. And that's part yeah. of your dietary prescription. That's great. I know a yeah. lot of new, we have a pretty robust nutrition team here. We actually have a nutrition internship program, but um, a lot of clinicians transitioning in and certainly me in the beginning of my years, when I first started my practice, I was doing it all on my own. And um, mm -hmm. yeah. it's just a great idea to have a good resource of books. There's so, so yeah. many good um, Yeah therapeutic nutrition books out there now. Absolutely, yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Mielke, it was wonderful talking to you. I think you've given us a lot of pearls, and it's just really nice for a change for me to actually talk to a clinician who's, you know, in the trenches doing yeah. this day in and day out, yeah. particularly somebody with your breadth of experience and, um, you know, coming from the Dan conference era and, and yeah. you know, making a leap into uh, doing anti-aging stuff. I know you've, you've just got a wealth of experience and, you know, I think our, it's our listeners are going to rewarding way to practice, you know, it's just when you see those patients getting better and integrative medicine is just so obviously the right way to go. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. That sounds like a good place to end. Thank you so much. Hey, okay. Oh, thank you.